For those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Brandon. I work with the youth here. Uh, and why don't you guys just go ahead and turn right to Exodus 24. Let's get started. You guys might be wondering why we're skipping Exodus 20 through 23. We're not. Rod's going to come back. He's going to hit those. But we just preached Exodus 19. Rod did an awesome job. And 24 is like the sister passage to that. So that's why we're kind of glossing over those for today. Feels good to be in here. It feels, feels different. And not just because normally I'm relaxed sitting out there and I'm terrified to be up here speaking today. Um, feels a little different just because of how I left last week. Last week when I left here, I had kind of a feeling I've never really experienced before. The only way I can really describe it is kind of like this divided heart. Okay, I sat out here, I listened to Rod preach on Exodus 19, and it was an amazing message. If you guys weren't here, download it. It was awesome. And I sat there with half of my heart, like just pricked by the word of God and just challenged and encouraged. And the other half of my heart was just like in sheer panic as I watched like little pieces of my sermon kind of float away as he covered much of the things that I wanted to say. So I went back to the drawing board, kind of scrapped a whole bunch, and I started kind of picking through, I guess, like the bone pile of what was left. And I realized that there is still a ton of meat on the bone here. There's still a ton for us. In fact, there's so much I can't cover it all. If you guys want some homework, you guys want just something fun, go home and look at how Exodus 19, Exodus 24 parallel the transfiguration. There's so many quotes, so many allusions. It's awesome. It's worthwhile. Study it this week. Um, So go ahead and turn to Exodus 24. Like I said, why don't you guys go ahead and stand up? You guys know the drill here. We stand for the reading of God's word. I'm just going to read a little bit to start and we'll finish it off later. Starting in verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. And the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Fools. Moses then wrote down everything that the Lord had said. Go ahead and grab a seat. All right, we haven't read all of this passage yet. Like I said, we're going to read the second half later, or the second two-thirds. But what this passage really is about is it's a story. It's a story of a holy God marrying an unholy people. Let that soak in for just a second. A holy God marrying an unholy people. It would have been enough for God to just be king and us to be servants. It would have been more than enough for him to be shepherd and us to be sheep. It would have been just pure grace for God to say, you know what, I'll be father and I'll adopt you as sons and daughters. But God goes even beyond that and he says, you know what? I'm going to marry you. I'm going to marry you, Israel. And that's the God that we serve. That's the passage that we're reading, but it doesn't stop there. It's the story of a holy God marrying an unholy people. But really then it goes on to talk about marriage and how baked into marriage, there's just this expectations that are there and there's consequences for not living up to those expectations. So that's where we're going today. And how we're going to get there, kind of the roadmap for the sermon, if you guys want to know a little bit of a spoiler, is we're going to spend the first part of our sermon talking about just the parties here, the bride and the groom, who they are, how they fit. And then we're going to step into the marriage ceremony itself and what this marriage really means. Okay, so we're going to start off talking about the bride and groom. Let's dive in right now with that. I I want to introduce you guys to a phrase, maybe introduce, some of you guys might know it. The phrase is dating down. Have you guys ever heard this? 
Dating down a few people laughing, okay. I had never heard of this phrase until I moved to China. And I was living in China, and when you're teaching English in China, where's James Bryan? I know he's excited wherever he's at. He loves China. Um, When you're teaching English there, the students will get their hands on any kind of English that they can. And so they'll listen to maybe like the most awkward music, they'll watch these movies, and they'll come into class and they'll ask you really, really awkward phrases that they heard in these movies. And like you'll sit up there and you'll blush. I'm not even going to say any of them today, but I'll give you one example that's a little bit more tame. Um, Someone came up to my wife, who's sitting in the front row here, and uh, this young Chinese boy comes up and he says, what is, teacher, what is dating down? And I sat there watching my wife kind of explain, well, that's when one person is dating somebody, but really they could do a lot better. Like they're dating someone who's maybe down here when they could date someone who's up here. And I just looked at this boy's face wondering, like, did someone tell him that his girlfriend was dating down? Like, what, where did he even hear this? I can't think of a song. And fellas, really, we don't use this phrase a lot, but if you came here with a girlfriend, if you came here with a fiance, if you came here with a wife, I want you to look at her right now. She's dating down, okay? There's no doubt about it. Every one of us, we're lucky. We're blessed. So as I thought about this phrase, dating down this week, and as I thought about this passage and how it's really the best example I can think of of dating down, but this thing kept flashing through my head, this memory, and I told a little bit of a joke against Will last time, so I figured I better tell some embarrassing stuff about myself too. So middle school Brandon... Okay, that's me. Middle school Brandon, he was tall, he was gangly, he was awkward. It just was not a good phase for me at all. But middle school Brandon had a crush on a girl. And when you're in middle school, you, you want to make sure that, you know, like who you have a crush on is someone that's achievable, someone, you know, that if you were to ask her out, she's not going to say no. Um, somebody that, you know, is within your league. And so I had a crush on this girl named Cindy, Cindy Crawford. And good, you guys know her. Okay. Um, Cindy Crawford, for those of you guys under 30, was the top supermodel in the world at the time. I mean, Cindy Crawford was everywhere. You turn on the Super Bowl, she's in the Pepsi ads, she's in all the magazines. Cindy Crawford was like the it girl at that time. And I remember walking past kind of like the People magazine on the rack, and I saw Cindy Crawford was engaged. And I was just like devastated. Like, oh, man. And then I looked at who she was engaged to, and... I've since learned that almost every girl finds Richard Gere to be kind of like a studly guy, but to a middle school boy at that time, like, he was just this, like, crusty grandpa to me. Like, I mean, I looked, and he might as well have been an 80-year-old man proposing to Cindy Crawford here, this supermodel. And what I found out was that he was 17 years older than her. And this made matters all the worse. He was 17 years older than her. And I was exactly 17 years younger than Cindy. And I just thought she made this huge mistake. She's dating down. This passage is an even bigger example. Okay, this passage, it's not an age difference. This is a qualitative difference. The two people are just in total different worlds. So with that, I want to even mention too, like there's a chasm between these two. I want to challenge you guys to try to find an example of dating down this week that's more so than this. There's such a chasm between the two that the bride and groom can't even be like in the same room together 
And I don't mean how you shield the groom, like my wife shoots weddings and I'm a pastor, so I do some weddings and like how you try to like block off the groom and like the bride's coming down the stairs. Everybody like make them face this way, do this and that. Like I'm not talking about that. I'm talking if Israel even approached the mountain that God was on, it meant death for them. That's how separate, how distinct these two parties are. And really that's the big theme. That's one of the big themes in this passage is just the distinctness of God. How he's, he might be marrying Israel, but he's wholly other. In fact, marriage is one of the most connecting ceremonies that we have. It's two people becoming one. It's so intimate. It's so connecting. But we see here that this is not a marriage among equals. Look at the passage again. In verse 1, you see, I did the math, that there's 74 people that are selected. From all of Israel, 74 people are chosen. Just that. 75, I guess, if you want to include Joshua. He's not mentioned, but he was probably there. But it gets whittled down even further. And eventually, there's only one person. One person who can approach God, and that's Moses. And even he has to wait seven days. Verse 1, the second half. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. And the people, they can't come up with them. Skip down to verse 15. We didn't read it, but we will now. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. He had to wait. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the mountain. It's so intimidating that they just look at this mountain and they just assume, like, Moses must be dead. Like, there's no way he's living through this thing. I don't know where you guys are at with all this stuff. It's not a real popular opinion to hold today. Passages like this really aren't in style. People today don't want a God that's separate. They don't want a God that's distinct. Instead, we say things like, oh, God's everywhere. He's, he's in you. He's in me. He's in every living creature. He's like this more of a force that's just connected through everything. And we settle for this like avatar-like spirituality. And we certainly don't like the picture of God being up high on a mountain, thundering down commands and Israel quaking down below. We prefer God's a co-pilot. Like God's, God's in the cockpit. I'm in the cockpit. Sometimes I'm driving. Sometimes he's driving. Like we're both in control. We're both deciding where this thing goes. Or maybe it's, God's just like an encouraging friend. I mean, Jesus is my homeboy. I've seen that t-shirt. Because that's a shocking statement of the ignorance towards the holiness of God. We're friends, sure. John 15, Jesus lays out that we're friends. Friends, yes, equals never. We're spouses. This passage lays it out. Praise God but we're never equals. And this passage, really, it's, it's just begging us to see the difference between us and God, to see how far he's stooping down. Turn to Exodus 19, a couple chapters back. This is how the whole marriage ceremony starts off. Rod preached it. I won't cover it a lot. But Exodus 19, it, God tells Moses, tell the people, Moses, go down the mountain, tell them, consecrate yourselves. Make yourselves as holy as you possibly can. Wash yourselves. Get as pure as possible. And even with all those preparations, three days to make yourself as pure as possible, he still tells Moses, verse 21, Moses, go down and warn the people. Tell them not to force their way through to see the Lord, or many of them will die. If you skip down to verse 24, the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests, 
and the people, not even the priests, can force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. That's the holiness of God that we're talking about. Israel might be marrying God, but he's still a holy, holy, holy God. Everything in this wedding really shows us that God is separate, that he's dating down in the most extreme fashions. But I just, I feel like we've lost this. I feel like there's this flippant kind of disregard for the holiness of God in the church today. I think I'm guilty of this too. We talk so much, I talk so much about how we have access to God through Jesus. And it's amazing and it's incredible and it's true and I don't ever want us to stop talking about it. We have access to the Father through Jesus. But I think we underplay it because we don't talk about it, the fact that it's something we should never have access to in the first place. We don't deserve it. We're unworthy of this access. It, it's like if I went to the Oval Office on a small, small scale, if I went to the Oval Office, it would feel special to me because I know like I shouldn't even be in here. Like, wow, this is like where the president is and all that stuff. Realizing that we don't deserve it makes us to realize how amazing it really is all the more. But do you have that kind of reverence for God today? That kind that realizes that he's a personal God, absolutely that realizes that he made a way, absolutely, but also never treats him as an equal. I just, I feel like we've shrunk God down sometimes. So that's our groom. That's the groom in the story. What about the bride? I searched and searched kind of all week, thinking through, like, how can I compare these two? How can I help us to see who we are in this story and how we, we kind of correlate, how we stack up against God here? And this is the best that I can do. Who's the most famous couple in the world today? Please don't say Kim and Kanye. Don't say Brad and Angelina either. What is that, Brangelina? You guys were thinking it too. I can see some looks out there. I think, I think the most famous couple in the world today is just across the pond from us, okay? I think Neil would be really proud of me right now for saying that. I practiced my best British accent for that for like all week and realized it just, it, nope, nope. You guys hear Neil way too much. I'm not doing it. I think the most famous couple in the world is William and Kate, right? That darling little couple that stole our hearts. They got married, right? It's, uh, it's an amazing thing. And there's so the royal family over there, they're celebrities, but they're more than that. I mean, they're fawned over, they're adored, they're worshipped practically, they're respected, In fact, I looked it up just to make sure it was true. When the royal wedding took place, you guys remember the royal wedding, I'm sure. It was all over the news. It was declared a national holiday in England. No one needed to go into work today. Like, I don't need to show up. I don't need to do my job. Just because these people, have you ever met William and Kate? Nope. But we're not going to work. We're going to watch them get married. You got to go to the bank, make a deposit? Not today. They're all closed. This is how serious they take their royal wedding. And all the talk leading up to it for months and months, was kind of like the tabloids paying big money saying, get any information on Kate Middleton that we can. And all the talk was, is she worthy? Who is she? How does she deserve this honor? Does she live up to being worthy of being a princess? But I want you guys to imagine something. I think sometimes that's how we think of ourselves in the story. But I want you guys to imagine something a little bit different. I want you to think about if William had chosen somebody totally different, not Kate, not Kate Middleton, but he went out and he found a girl, and he fell in love with her, and she was a prostitute. And not just like a former prostitute, not like a pretty woman story here, but like I'm talking in the gutter, 
IV in the, or a, a needle in the arm, addicted to drugs, prostitute, with not, not even a hope of changing her lifestyle. Plans on continuing in it. Can you imagine the outcry that would have gone on? Who is this girl? How in the world does she think that she's worthy? The prince is stooping way too low. I think this is the best example I can give, and I still think it's woefully inadequate. I use it because it helps paint a picture of who we are in this story. We're that girl. I use it too because God uses something similar in Hosea, but I think it's, it's almost like trying to explain the vastness of the ocean using just a bathtub. You can't do it. We're not, we don't have a correlation because this is human to human and we're human to God in this passage. That's why I think Isaiah says it best when he just says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are your ways above our ways. I keep having flashbacks to Rod. This summer he preached on the Priestly series and he talked about Zechariah chapter 3. He talked about what the most holy man on the most holy day in the most holy place looks like to God. And he looks filthy. I wonder, do we feel that way about our sin today? Admittedly, I want us to feel it. I want us to feel dirty. I want us to feel inadequate. I want us to feel unworthy. I want us to feel revolting. Why? Why would I want us to feel that way? Because when compared to our groom, when compared to our God, it's reality. And so much of the world's wisdom is the exact opposite. If you go to Barnes & Noble right now and you go to their self-help book section, you're going to find things and almost everything that you find is going to say things like, love yourself. You know what? Like, Look in the mirror, find five great things about yourself and just claim those things and walk out and, and own the day. Realize that you're something special, that you're something great. Believe in the power of you, power of your intentions. And I want to tell you guys, this is poison. It's delicious tasting poison. When I was a kid, and I'm embarrassed to tell you this because I'm not nearly as much as young of a kid as you might imagine when you hear the story, I used to eat potpourri. I'm talking like, large quantities of potpourri. (laughs) And the reason that I did it was that it it looked delicious. It looked like a bowl of just delicious candy. It smelled of cinnamon goodness. And believe it or not, it actually didn't taste nearly as bad as you think that it would. (laughs) The notion to believe in yourself is a lot like potpourri. It smells, it looks, it tastes good. But if you eat it, if you consume it, if you ingest it, ultimately, it'll poison you. It isn't freedom. It looks like freedom. It feels like freedom. But it's toxic. It's a replica. The second that you look in the mirror, this is true, I... I want you guys to hear it. The second that you look in the mirror and you find something about yourself and you say, I'm okay because X is true about me, is the second that you sentence yourself to slavery to that thing. Say, what do I mean by that? Those things that were your salvation, those things that made you okay because you saw them, the second that they start to let you down, they become the very things that condemn you. 
You were always successful. You looked in the mirror and you thought, man, that guy's successful. But now you're staring down bankruptcy. And it condemns you. You always thought, you know what, I'm pretty. I've got that going on for me. But now people don't respond to you the same way that they did. And it eats you up and it says you're not okay anymore. You always got good grades. But now you graduated and you're not hacking it in the real world like you thought you would. Those very things that were your salvation now become the very things that condemn you. This is why Paul dedicates the first three chapters of Romans to basically one central idea, and that's there's no one righteous. No, not even one. We don't measure up. You say, that's depressing. No. I'm telling you right now, it's freedom. And this is why, because when you look in that mirror and you say, I'm talented. I'm attractive, I'm likable, or anything else that you say, it's trumped any day of the week by looking at God and saying, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm adopted, I'm chosen, I'm his. These things, I'm telling you, they're poison. I'm likable, I'm successful, I'm smart, I'm funny is trumped any day of the week, just to repeat it, by I'm forgiven and I'm chosen and I'm holy through Christ. Only when you see that you're not the best, that you're not the most talented, you're not the most gifted, can you appreciate the fact that you're loved, not because you performed admirably, but you're loved because you were chosen by a holy God, the holy God, creator of heavens and earth, creator of you, who knows you so intimately and so thoroughly that not a hair will fall from your head without him knowing it. That verse speaks, even to a bald guy like me, that verse speaks. Rod touched on this last week. He said you're loved because you're loved. And that reality will change everything in your life. Leave the thinking highly of yourself and start thinking highly of your Savior. We need to know two things. If you know that, that all this talk is about healthy self-identity and it's, it's really common talk today, and I'm telling you there's two things. And if you only get one, I don't care which one you get, you get an incomplete poisonous picture. But if you get all two, you get a healthy idea of who you are. One is that you're unworthy. But two is that you're chosen. All right, that's the players in our wedding. That's the bride, that's the unworthy, unworthy bride and the holy groom. Now we can step into the actual ceremony, but before I kind of reread the rest of our passage, let me just say marriage is the most insti- amazing institution that we have. And not just because my wife is in the front row do I say that. It's, it's incredible. But I'm afraid that we, we undersell it and we don't think about what its true meaning is and it's lost in this day and age. I remember I, I got all of the girl students, all the girl high school students, and we got them all together and we set up a Q&A with them. Some of them are in this room, probably remember this. And I had Rod come in and join. And so Rod and I sat on this panel and the girls were able to ask us any question that they have. And uh, it was a fun time, but I kind of sensed this theme coming up of dating over and over again. And so I just decided like, hey, would it be okay if I turned the tables and I asked you guys a question? And I asked everyone, okay, what's the purpose of dating? And it took a little bit, but finally a hand went up and this brave girl was like, I, it's, 
I guess to find out who you're going to marry? And I was like, good answer. I like that. Okay, that's really good. Let me ask another question if I can then. What's, what's the purpose of marriage? Silence. No clue what the purpose of marriage is because we don't do a good job talking about what marriage is. We live in a society that's reduced, they've reduced the, the, the purpose and the meaning and the value of marriage to mere happiness. And I'm telling you right now, if personal happiness is your goal in marriage, you're going to be disappointed. All the married people laughed. <laughs> Let me just say it again for the singles too. If personal happiness is your goal in marriage, you're going to be disappointed. Every time. The good news is it doesn't mean that your marriage is broken. It just means that you're asking it to fulfill a purpose that it wasn't designed to fulfill. Marriage is something deeper than that. It's the best example that I can think of of our relationship with God. It's meant to reflect realities that are much deeper than itself. It's meant to point us to something beyond it, something that we were created to crave. It's kind of in the same way that if I see a sign for the Grand Canyon, that's not the Grand Canyon itself. That's not the destination. It's pointing to something beyond itself. We see this all the time in Scripture. We know it. We read passages like Abraham and Isaac. We read about Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac and God stopping the knife, and we just kind of know this is about more than just Abe and Isaac here. This is pointing us to the fact that God's ultimately going to sacrifice his son on a mountain. And marriage in the same way is pointing to something deeper, something that we are created for, something that we long for. So let me say it like this. Marriage is a lifelong, intimate, monogamous relationship with another. And it's the best representation, I think, of heaven where we're going to have not a lifelong, but an eternal, intimate, monogamous, personal relationship with God for all time. Marriage is designed not to just make you happy or to simply cure loneliness. It's designed to point you to the ultimate spouse. We're to have marriages that reflect Christ to a watching world. We need a new vision for what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant. I'm going to read a larger portion of this passage again. And we're talking a lot about marriage. I'm talking a lot about marriage, I guess. Um, I don't have time to cover all the ways that this is a marriage. I read this for a lot of years and I didn't ever see that. And partly because this is a Jewish marriage. And there's parallels all over the place in here. I don't have time to touch on them all. So as we read, I'm going to point out just a few. But if you want more, go home and I... I think if you just Google Exodus 24 and Jewish marriage, you'll find a ton of stuff or Jewish wedding. So verse four, the second half, my Bible, it starts a new paragraph. It says, he got up that next morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Why would Moses do this? He's basically saying, this is a huge, important moment, guys. I'm putting 12 stones out here so that whenever you see this, you remember this moment. You remember the covenant that you're making. You tell your kids about this covenant. And then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and he put it in bowls. And the other half he splashed against the altar. This is in a Jewish wedding like it represents the drinking of the marriage cup. We'll talk more on that later. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. This is the vows, like every wedding. 
They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Say the same thing in our weddings. It's the consent that the bride gives after the vows. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. Okay, that's weird. And said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. We'll talk more on that. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Okay, pause here just for one second. This passage kind of threw me for a second when I first started reading it. Like, whoa, these guys saw God? Like, I thought a couple chapters later it was going to say that no one can see God's face and live. Look at what they describe. They describe basically underneath his feet, the bottoms of his feet. And even that is indescribable. Under his feet was something like a pavement of lapis lazuli. Think sapphire. As bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, they ate, and they drank. Okay, so even here, one, we have Moses listed with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. All of those guys are going to fail. Nadab and Abihu are going to be dead soon. Aaron's making the golden calf. I think God is begging for us just to see that these guys are not worthy of this right here. This is grace. And second off... Even this, that it has to point out that God's hand is held up, but he has to stay it. He doesn't kill these guys. Even from just seeing the bottom of his feet, he's that holy. This, though, is one of the most intimate moments in a marriage. It's the marriage supper. They're eating and they're drinking right here. Okay, continue on. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. The groom always gives the bride a gift. Oftentimes it's their vows, too so they can have those. Skip down to verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Okay, Jewish weddings have what's called a hoopah, and it's like this canopy or this um, closet, and it, the couple stays in it for seven days. It's at the house. It's, it's kept at the father-in-law's house. And right there, they're staying with this hoopah. And right here, we see that Moses is there with this glory cloud forming this canopy over them. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. We have this new creation, six days. On the seventh, we have this new Noah, 40 days and 40 nights. And I know that there's a lot there. We've gone through it really quickly. What I want to do, though, is I I feel like it'd be foolish to try to take it all, especially at this point in the sermon. So we're just going to take the central piece, probably the piece most of you guys are wondering about, too, the the part that I said it's weird. Verse 6 and 7, let me explain what's happening here. Moses is taking a whole, I I don't know what you call a unit of blood, like a bushel, a homer, a a bowl, like what? (laughs) He, He takes that. He takes that and he splits it in half and he puts half in these bowls. He leaves it over there and then he takes half and he splashes it on the altar. And we, then he grabs the book of the covenant and he reads it before the people. He reads it out to them. He says, are you guys sure? This is the third time that he's asked them, will you do this? And I can almost just hear him saying like, look, look at the blood. This is a big deal. Are you sure that you will do it? Let's pause here for a second and just say, what are they agreeing to? What is this book of the covenant? Well, it's kind of not fair. It's Exodus 20 through 23, which we're not, we skipped over. Um, Rod will do it in a, in a couple of weeks here, so I don't want to ruin it, but just think 10 commandments. That's what they're agreeing to. 
God promised that he's going to make them his treasured possession, that he's going to marry them, that he's going to take them for his own, that he's going to make them a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And what's Israel promising? Israel's promising that they're going to obey the law. Let that sink in for just a second. That's why I called them fools earlier. They don't say, oh, we'll do it when it's convenient. Uh, we'll try. They say, we'll obey fully what the Lord has said. It's almost laughable how quickly they fall in this. A picture like a bride up there giving their vows, like with their fingers crossed. But Israel here, the wedding is still going on. Like the wedding is literally still taking place and Israel is dancing around this golden calf. This would be, I think the only parallel I can think of is like if you went to a wedding, it's a beautiful ceremony. This couple, you're just excited that they're getting married. You show up to the reception ready to just like, Um, eat and hang out and maybe dance and you see the bride hitting on a groomsman. Like, oh, this is not sitting well. And instead of leaving with her husband, she leaves with this groomsman. That's what Israel's doing. That's the level of betrayal that's taking place here. But before we're too hard on Israel, I, I want us to think about ourselves. As Christians, we're married to Christ too, or we're married to God too. That's why we're called the bride of Christ the church. How are we doing as a spouse? Crossroads. How are we doing as a church? How are we doing individually in this regard? I don't think I need to spell out what spiritual adultery looks like. I think every one of us knows. I mean, it's different for each person, but we just know what that looks like in our lives. And I think if we're bold enough to search our hearts, we all know exactly what cheating on them looks like. We know the vows promised. We know that we're guilty of violating them. I wonder how many of us in this room are brave enough to really ask the question of ourselves, how have I trampled my marital vows? Or if you're like me, how have I shattered them? Just because I'm a pastor, don't look at me any differently. I'm a serial adulterer towards God. And I hate it. And as much as I love you guys, I look out around the room and there's people in here that I just respect and I trust. I just fear that I'm not alone in that. What are we doing? Do you feel the sting of your sin today? Or is your heart hardened? This week I had to pray a lot because I felt like I just had a hardened heart. I had to ask God to give me a vision for what marriage really looks like and a vision for what it looks like to be married to someone like me. It wasn't pretty. I want to go back to the blood here, keeping that in mind. And this blood covenant should ring a bell for us. Can you guys think of where in the Bible this comes from? Where in the Bible this has happened beforehand? It's Genesis 15. Abraham makes a covenant with God and he does this thing that's really strange to us. He slices all the animals in half and he kind of puts them on this, this valley and he puts them on either side and he lets the blood, ro- blood flow into the middle and he's waiting for God to make this covenant and he falls asleep and he wakes up and he realizes that God has passed through the blood. God's walked through all this blood And what he's basically saying is, if I don't live up to my end of the bargain, you can do this to me. You can kill me. I'm sealing it in blood. But God passes through for both of them. 
So if Abraham fails, it's on God. If God fails, it's on him. And we know that Abraham fails. Time and time again, we all fail. And so we run right to Christ and we take that to where a fully God, Jesus, pays the price. He pays for that that blood price that's demanded. And here, however, though, we see a covenant that's a little bit different. This covenant's conditional. What I mean by that is it's kind of weird. Exodus 19.4, how this whole thing starts off, and it just says, now, if you obey me fully and keep the covenant, then. So if you do this, then this. In other words, if you fail the covenant, the blood's on your own head here, guys. Now, I read that, and I say, whoa, 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 wait. Like, isn't Christianity a grace-based religion? Isn't Judaism a grace-based religion? What's going on here? And I say, absolutely, it is. But before we get into how it's grace-based, let's look at what God's laying out in this passage, okay? He's laying out these things. I'll marry you, Israel, if this. And Israel, like I said, fools that they are, they, they just jump into it. Absolutely, we'll obey fully everything that you say. And look at what Moses does with these bowls of blood. He grabs these bowls, Hebrews 9 gives us a full picture of what he does. He, he thins them out with water to make sure that he has enough. And he grabs this hyssop and he dips it into the blood. And when every Israelite walks by, he flings blood on them. And he's saying, this blood is on you. You're making this covenant. Each one of them will be held responsible. Each one of them will have little dried drops of blood on their clothes for them to remember the covenant that they're making with the Lord. And this is a problem. It's a huge problem. Because Israel just signed their own death certificate. They didn't put a date. They didn't put a time. But they're dead from this point on. They're failing this. Okay? Their polka-dotted clothes betray them as they dance around the golden calf. It declares that they're guilty. And so you look at that and you see in Exodus 32, right while the golden calf is going on, that God's like, I'm wiping them out. I'm done with them. The blood's on their own hands here. I'm taking them out. And Moses intercedes. He points us to a, a higher mediator, to the ultimate mediator who sits at the right hand of God interceding for us, and he stops God from doing it. But before we kind of rush there, isn't that the boat that we're all in, though? We've all kind of signed our own death certificate. The date and time aren't on it, but we're guilty. And I want to give you guys a little assignment as we end here. I want you guys to think about the sin that we choose over God every day. I want you to think about how we're doing as a spouse. How's your walk with God? Is it intimate and vibrant or is it adulterous and cold? Like Israel, are we failing as the bride of Christ? I'm telling you this, this is so true It's encouraging as we look at dark places, but you'll never fully appreciate the gospel. You'll never fully appreciate it until you're willing to look at the blackness of your own heart. Let me say it again. You'll never fully appreciate the gospel until you're willing to look at the blackness of your own heart. That's why Jesus says, he who's been forgiven much loves much. And I want to challenge you guys today. Look at the blackness in your heart. But I don't want you to stop there. I want you to then think about Jesus. And how he's the answer for every problem this passage lays out. How can a holy God marry an unholy people? How can that happen when they're so mismatched? God's not going to become unholy so he can marry us. No. 
through Christ on the cross, we've been granted, we've been imputed, we've been given his righteousness, his holiness. How can this blood covenant be paid? They're guilty. They're dead. Like I said, Moses intercedes and it points us to Christ, but even Hebrews talks about us being sprinkled with a different blood. Sprinkled with Christ's blood. Even some of you guys might be looking at the darkness in your own life and saying, can this marriage even be saved anymore? Is it past the point of being saved? And what I want to point you to is Mark 14. Mark 14, 24, after breaking the bread, Jesus took the cup and he held it up and he said, this cup, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant He's quoting Exodus 24 here, word for word from the Septuagint. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Through Jesus, the marriage is saved. So much so that the church is now called the bride of Christ. Guys, we have communion set up. And I want you guys to to take a look at the sin in your own heart. But then I want you to look at the Savior who pays that price for us who gives us a new covenant in his blood. And when you're up there, I want you to think about it. This table's open for anyone who's a believer and I want you to to think about the wedding ring almost being put back on your finger. Jesus makes us the spouse that we never could be. Let's pray. God, I just, I confess that I go my own way so much. God, that I just, I cheat on you all the time and it kills me. God, I pray that you would make me the spouse that you want me to be. God, I'm just thankful that when you look at me, you see Christ's righteousness and not my failures. Please just take us to the cross today. In Jesus' name, amen.